Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is a privilege to preach God's Word to you this morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Let's pray. Holy Father, our lives are so perverted, our priorities are so messed up. You are the center of the universe and the Lord of all, and yet so often you are not the center of our lives. But we pray that you would increase our knowledge of you today, that you would show us how beautiful you are how ugly our sin is, that you would really work in our hearts this morning. Lead us to Christ, that we might come through Christ to you. Lord, convict us of our sin. Give us a holy fear of you and thankfulness for your great mercy that atones uh, for our sins through Jesus Christ and his death. We pray in his name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6. This is God's word. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. It's God's word. This passage is one of my very favorite passages in the whole Bible. There's something about it that makes me feel as we approach it that you almost have to read it with your shoes taken off. It is the classic passage on the holiness of God 
And it is a turning point, the turning point in the life of the prophet Isaiah. After this, Isaiah's world was forever changed. His view of Israel, his view of sin, of himself, of the world, of everything was all drastically transformed and made more clear in the light of God's glory. Like Abraham and Moses before him and Paul after him, and on another level, like every Christian, when God reveals himself to us, all is changed. One day, brothers and sisters, you will see the Lord just as he is. And John wrote that because we see him, we will be changed. We will be like him. Now, this wasn't just a turning point for Isaiah. For another reason, it was a turning point for the whole nation. And how do I know this? It's because this was the year that King Uzziah died. That's how this passage begins, in the year of King Uzziah's death. Now, one could easily pass over such a statement as simply a marker of time, but that is not the normal way in the Bible to mark the time. It would be a bit more normal if it said, in the first year of King Jotham. No, see, Isaiah is emphasizing something important here. You see, Uzziah was not just any king. He's not as famous to us as David or Solomon. But he was almost a permanent figure in, in Judah. He had reigned in Judah for 52 years. Far longer than any other king had up to that point. Most people in Israel had never known a different king. He had probably reigned longer than most people in Israel had been alive. And his kingdom had grown powerful under his reign. He built cities. He built up the army. He conquered different areas. He got tribute from different nations. He was probably the greatest king of Israel since King Solomon. This young man who had become king when he was 16 years old, when most of us were just getting our driver's license, he reigned for 52 years and he sought the Lord. And it says in Second Chronicles that as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. But then he grew great because he was mightily helped. And when he had grown great, he also grew proud. And there was a time when he entered into the temple himself and decided that he was going to offer incense rather than the priests. And so he went into the temple and he offered up incense and 80 priests came in to oppose him, and he was enraged. It's an incredible story in uh, 2 Chronicles 26. And as he turned, leprosy broke out on his forehead, and he became a leper to the end of his life, and he fled from the temple. And it says that he remained cut off, cut off from the temple of the Lord. Now lately, as he declined, the kingdom declined with him. And God had abandoned, as it were, Uzziah. Now the year of his death had come, and this powerful king had grown into an old man. His enemies all around were growing stronger. And the year that King Uzziah died would be a time of uncertainty. 
perhaps a time of fear for the nation. And it is just at this moment, in this context of uncertainty and fear and tragedy, that God appears to Isaiah. And what does Isaiah see? It is something that should give us comfort, no matter what uncertainty and fears and tragedies that we face in this world. Isaiah sees the king. In the year that King Uzziah dies, he says, verse 5, my eyes have seen the king, the true king, the real king, the heavenly king. Israel has lost their king, but Israel's God remains, and he remains king. This contrast is especially clear here. The year that King Uzziah died, verse 1, my eyes have seen the king, verse 5. As great as he was, Uzziah was a sinful, dying leper king. By contrast, God is the holy, eternal, almighty king of all. And Isaiah presents us here with a royal scene. God is sitting on a throne. He has a throne, high and exalted. He has a royal robe, which fills the temple. He has royal attendants, angels there to do his bidding. He has an army, for as they call out, they call him the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And he has dominion, and it is not limited to Israel. It is not limited by anything. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what a contrast that is. Isaiah's eyes at this moment are taking above the fleeting troubles above of this world, taking above earthly enemies and political changes and shrinking and expanding nations. Brothers and sisters, if only our eyes could ascend with Isaiah's, if we could see the full picture, if we could see God on the throne, how would your perspective change? Brothers and sisters, it is true. Our God reigns. Our King is on the throne. His power is infinite. His reign is everlasting. His knowledge is without limit. His plan is perfect. His sovereignty is unassailable. And he rules over the whole world. He was there long before King Uzziah was born. He's there today. Rulers come and go. Nations rise and fall. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Sometimes things are going better for us. Sometimes worse. Jesus Christ is as good as ever. And he is in control. He is on the throne. So why should we worry about tomorrow? Is there anything that takes your king by surprise? Is there anything outside of his control? Does he sleep? Does he slumber? Is there any enemy that poses any threat to him at all? No, none. And yet at the same time, though he is so lofty and exalted, he is a king who is interested and involved in the most minute details of your life. He knows every hair on your head. 
you know, as if there's no hair on your head. A tiny sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his knowledge. Our king causes galaxies to spin and electrons to bind, and he is equally sovereign in both. He knows about and he cares about and he, the details of your life that you don't know about, that you don't care about. He cares for your own soul more than you could ever care for it. How did Psalm 113 say it? It said, Who is like the Lord, our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things in heaven and on the earth? That's amazing. So exalted. He bends down. He stoops down to look at heaven and on earth. And yet, what does the next verse say? He raises the poor from the dust and the needy from the ash heap. Isn't that amazing? Majesty and mercy, glory and grace, transcendence and imminence. He is heavenly and he is a father. Or as Isaiah loved to say, he is the holy one of Israel, all at the same time. Brothers and sisters, you have a great king. You need a great king. And he watches over your life. He will not leave us or forsake us. Therefore, we ought not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. If only our eyes of faith could see what Isaiah saw, we would have confidence in every trial. We would be forever changed. And we would know that nothing takes God by surprise. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the king. What if you could say that? In the year I lost my job, I saw the king still on his throne, still in control. In the year I got cancer, I saw the king, still sovereign, still good. In whatever problem, doesn't that change everything? To know that that is not just anyone there, but Jesus Christ, your brother, your savior, is on the throne. Brothers and sisters, the next time trouble and uncertainty strikes. Remember what Isaiah saw. The king still reigns. And what an awesome sight it must have been. Lofty and exalted with his robe filling the temple. Seraphim fly above him. They must have been amazing themselves. And I can imagine if, if I were to see that, I would want to write about them in more detail. Seraphim means burning one. So maybe they look as if they're on fire. They have six wings. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. It's amazing. We would be tempted to worship them if we saw it. But more important for Isaiah than how they look is their message. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I struggled for a while. How do I read this? How do I possibly do justice to this? Because 
No human voice could do what this does. It shook the temple like an earthquake. In Hebrew, you can express a superlative by repetition. In other words, there's no way to say very in Hebrew. You have to repeat the word. So you remember how many times Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. But this is the only time in the Old Testament where our quality is said three times in a row. God is holy, and he's holy in his holiness. And he is holy in the holiness of his holiness. He is most holy. And how can I express this? For even the seraphim are at a loss for words. He is perfectly, infinitely, unchangeably holy. That's part of his character. There is no one like him. There is nothing like him. Things that are holy are holy because they're somehow associated with him. We're to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy because it's the Lord's day. The ground that he walks on is holy ground. The place where he lives is the holy place. And we often think of holiness as meaning something like morally good. That is one of the meanings. But its primary meaning is set apart or unique. It means there is no one like God. He is holy in his knowledge. He knows everything. And from every perspective it could possibly be known. He is holy in his power. He is almighty. He is holy in his being. He is everywhere. He is eternal. All that he does is holy. His spirit is holy. His justice is holy. His love is holy. Everything, every characteristic is infinite. He is so holy that these seraphim, who have no sin, can't even look at him. They have to cover their faces because he is so awesome in the real sense of that word. They can't describe him. All they can say is, he is beyond compare, beyond compare. He is holy. And I think we lose sight of this in the church today. We grow too comfortable, like Uzziah. We come into his presence without fearing him, with a godly fear. That should be characteristic of every Christian. You know, there was a time, another time back in Exodus 24, when God's prophet saw the Lord when Moses and Aaron went up the mountain with the elders of Israel. And it says, they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. One thing I find amazing about this passage is what it does not say. Moses describes the pavement, but he describes, he says nothing about what God looks like. Not one thing. The pavement under his feet was as high as human language could go. And here in Isaiah, we have the same sort of thing. Isaiah describes the seraphim in some detail. He describes God's throne, God's robe. He talks about how the thresholds shook at the voice of the seraphim. He describes the smoke filling the temple. But he says absolutely nothing about God's appearance. Did you notice that? That's how holy he is. The most eloquent language. And Isaiah was very eloquent. 
that was too clumsy to even begin to describe God. Perhaps you've been to the Grand Canyon or to some other beautiful scene in nature that you wanted to take a picture of, and you just couldn't because it just didn't do justice to the scene. It was too big to fit in a picture. And if that is sometimes the case for mountains and beautiful scenes around us, how much more so is it of the one who made it all? God is the source of all beauty and strength. So Isaiah could not describe God, but we can only see the effect. Burning angelic creatures, shielding their eyes from the splendor of his glory, a temple shaking, and Isaiah utterly laid waste, utterly convicted of his sin. And you see, that is another effect of seeing God as he is. It is only when we see how beautiful that he is that we understand how ugly our sin is. We begin to see ourselves for what we really are. Way too often we lift ourselves up, we exalt ourselves. God God is opposed to the proud. This God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When we see God for who he is, then we know, we know what we really are. Now, compared to the world, Israel was special. They're God's holy chosen people set apart for him. And Isaiah was not just a common Israelite. He was a prophet. But when he sees God, he has nothing of which to boast. He is in absolute despair. He cries out, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King. You see, he is in despair, not simply over sin in general, but in his sin in particular. He focuses on his mouth, the very thing that a prophet would probably boast in the most. He sees, even that, even my righteousness, he would say later on, is as filthy rags. I have nothing to offer this God that's good enough. And how can I even live in his presence? How can we live in the presence of this God? I am ruined, I am undone, I am lost. There's this His soul is totally stripped bare before the blinding gaze of God, which examines every part of him, and he is opened before him. When he sees the Lord, he knows exactly what sort of man he is and what sort of people he lives among. And he is unclean. That's the word he uses to describe his mouth. Unclean lips. You know, this is what lepers, like King Uzziah, would say. They would cry out, unclean, unclean, stay away. Isaiah uses that to describe his own lips. God is holy, 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 and we are unclean, unclean. Sinners, if you do not know the Lord, do not think that things are just going to work out with you at the end with God, that you can stand before him as you've been opposing him your whole life. You need a savior, just like we all do. How could any of us live 
in the presence of a God like this and not be destroyed. But there, in between Isaiah and the Lord, there's something else there, isn't there? It's an altar. And as soon as his confession comes out of those unclean lips, one of those burning ones flies over to the altar and takes it with tongs. And he presses it to Isaiah's mouth. And the seraph says, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Now what kind of wonderful coal could do that? Sin cannot be just done away with. It can't be just forgotten about. It has to be atoned for. But it was a coal from the altar where sacrifices were made. And as the sacrifices of the temple pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, what we see here in Isaiah is a picture of God's forgiving work through sacrifice, through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was always the case for, about the sacrifices. For on the one hand, without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins. And just as true on the other hand, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But these sacrifices pointed to the sufficient sacrifice, the holy Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. How could such a holy God live with a sinful people like us? It was only by Jesus Christ. Only if Jesus Christ bore Isaiah's sins and our sins and the sins of his people and was crushed for our iniquities, that he was undone. He was ruined. There in Isaiah 53, you see in more detail the solution to our problem. The Messiah who was to come, who would be despised and rejected. It says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then it says how painful it is to read. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised. And we did not esteem him. Think about that. Sinless, angelic creatures hide their face from him because he's so holy. And we hid our faces from Jesus Christ because his shame was so profound it embarrassed us to be around it, to see how low he had to come. And yet it was our shame that he bore. It is right there in his rejection in an in a act of sheer grace that we are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. And that gospel was in fact all around Isaiah. The altar, the sacrifices, the temple itself. It was all like a museum of Christ's future work. What is perhaps most astounding of all is that the holy king that Isaiah saw was the very same king who would bear Isaiah's sin. The Apostle John points this out in John 12, 41. There it quotes the following passage in Isaiah 6, and then he writes, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke of him. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah saw Jesus' glory when he looked upon God. 
the king that Isaiah saw, that the seraphim praised, whose glory fills the whole earth. It was the same Jesus who bore our sin so that we could be made holy. It really shouldn't surprise us that this is the case because the temple was always a picture of, and a promise of God's dwelling with man. Jesus was the one who tabernacled among us, whose body was God's temple. Jesus was the true temple, and this building was only a shadow. It was just a preview of Christmas. Jesus is the reality. We see in Jesus the reality of what Isaiah saw in the temple the year that King Uzziah died. God's dwelling with man, pictured in the temple, fulfilled in Christ's birth. The forgiveness of sins, pictured in the altar, fulfilled in Christ's death. Note, too, the effect that this has on Isaiah. He is purified. He is forgiven. And it changes him to such an extent that he longs to go out and to serve such a holy king. The Lord says afterwards, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. That's an amazing difference that the gospel makes. In but a moment, Isaiah goes from, Woe is me, I am ruined, to here am I. Send me. Brothers and sisters, has the knowledge of God's holiness had that effect in your lives too? It is something for us to dwell on, something for us to meditate on. The Apostle John said, this is the message which we, pro which we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. In some ways, it seems like a strange message, but it's at the heart of knowing who God is. He is holy. And it has this effect on us of humbling us and wanting to serve such a God. As Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has correctly pointed out, lots of people want to go onto the mission field. Lots of people want to go and serve the God and to say, here am I, here I am, here I am, send me, send me. But none of us say it in the same tone that pleases God unless they say it the way Isaiah said it. As someone who was in awe of God's holiness and knew that nothing he could possibly say from his unclean lips would be worthy of God's service. And yet, at the same time, he saw that God was a God who was forgiving. And if there is hope for Isaiah, it means there's hope for Israel too. It means there's hope for you, brothers and sisters. We do not serve the Lord rightly if we go out in our pride. And if you think you go to the mission field or to go to whatever service God calls you to, you're like you're riding on your white horse and serving these needy people. It will destroy your ministry. God uses the humble. And time and again, you'll see it in Scripture and in history, he humbles the men that he sends out. Or they go out and are probably not blessed. 
Now, I know you haven't had Isaiah's experience. We haven't had it. But God has revealed himself at the cross of Christ even more clearly than Isaiah ever saw. There at the ugly, blood-stained cross. That is where we also begin to understand the depth of our sin and the height of God's holiness, the perfection of justice, the extent of mercy, and what Jesus actually accomplished for us. That is where the gospel shines the brightest. Brothers and sisters, does that leave you in awe? And if it doesn't, nothing will. You have heard of Jesus Christ and his work many times. Has it brought you to your knees like Isaiah? You have heard that God is still on the throne and he rules over all. Has that changed your perspective on everything? Does it give you stability in every change, hope in every trial? You have heard of his saving grace for you, for you. Even while you were yet a sinner, Christ gave his life for you. Does that not make you zealous to want to worship and serve such a king? Oh, brothers and sisters, let us love him. Give him your heart. Let's pray. Father, you are holy. And we want to be, as the priests were called, wearing the golden tablet on their head, said, holy to the Lord, set apart for you. We want to be set apart for you. Lord, humble us. Our hearts are so cold. We need you to reveal yourself to us in your word. Give us faith that we might see ourselves in the light of your glory, that we might boast in nothing but Christ, nothing but the cross, and that knowing that we have him, we have everything. Lord, exalt yourself in our own lives, on your throne, we pray in Christ's name.